Welcome on board Talking Space number 619 for Monday, November 10th. My name is Gene McCalka, and I have the usual suspects, save one with us tonight. Sawyer Rosenstein is off doing some thespian work. He's a little bit of a, an actor, and uh, he's doing a college production. So uh, he's got the night off, and so you're stuck with the usual suspects, Cassie Tamanini, uh, Mark Ratterman, myself, Gene McCalka, and Kat Robeson. Well, tonight, let's just dive on in and, and get started. We've got a whole lot we, we need to discuss here. Uh, last night at about, uh, oh, what time was it here? Uh, according to NASA, at 10.58 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Expedition 41 officially ended in the Kazakhstan desert. Uh, it brought home uh, three uh, crewmen that would, who were on the International Space Station starting about, oh, May 29th or so, and spent about five months up there conducting research on our behalf. So, Cassie, I'm, as everybody who listens to Talking Space knows, I am lousy at pronouncing the Russian names, so I'm going to let you go ahead and, and uh, let everybody know who the balance of uh, Expedition 41 were, that uh, were, were our hired help for the past five months. Well, we have Commander Maxim Siryev of the Russian Federation, Alexander Gerst of ESA and Reed Weissman of NASA. And I would like to add part of the ISC experience was Alexander Gerst, I think, was the most popular German astronaut of all time or something. It's all anybody could talk about was how wonderful his mission was. So uh, I'm glad to see that they're all back safely on Earth. Yeah, and Reed Weissman, too, was also a bit of a, a Twitter sensation for some of the photography he was sharing up there. So... Again, welcome back uh, to Earth, and thanks so much for uh, thanks for all the fish, so to speak. Because uh, Expedition Forty Two is just starting, just started, and uh, uh, why don't we go ahead and uh, introduce the crew that's that's currently up there, some uh, two hundred miles up there, uh, taking care of us. Currently on the station, we have Barry Butch Wilmore of NASA, and the flight engineers are Alexander Semakutiev and Yelena Sarova. Now, coming soon, in, to make up the rest of Expedition 42, my favorite mission to date, <laughs> <laughs> on a personal note, we have Terry Vertz of NASA, Anton Shkoplerov of Russia, and Samantha Cristoforetti of the Italian Space Agency. I hope they remember to pack their towels. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Very important on this mission. <laughs> Yeah, indeed. Uh, NASA just basically took that ball and ran with it. And if 
we're going to put this in the end of the show notes, but for the crew poster for Expedition 42, they have a homage to Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So if anybody's really, really a, an aficionado of that series, it looks sort of sort of interesting, the, the crew poster. So we're going to post that up in, in the show notes. It's kind of cool. Cass, just on a, on a note, you said uh, this, this particular mission was uh, of some personal interest to you. Why? Well, first of all, I'm an Italian-American, and, you know, Italian-Americans are probably a little too proud of their Italian <laughs> heritage. And Samantha Cristoforetti happens to be the first Italian woman to go to space. And once she arrives on the space station, it's going to mark the first time that two non-American women are living aboard the ISS together. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. So, go ahead. I'm sorry, Kat. It makes for a very cool moment, a milestone, because the United States has sent so many more women to space than anybody else. And it's important. Of course, the big story is really Yelena Sarova being up there, but uh, beca just because of Russia's his history with women in space. But sending, and Christopher Etty is incredibly accomplished, incredibly qualified. She's a fantastic pilot, and she's worked really hard to get here. So... I, and I'd also like to say she's very, very great to watch. She's great at sharing, and I can't wait for her to be sharing from space. Yeah, that I agree. She's already, if you're not following her on Twitter, you're, you're crazy. So uh, we're going to go ahead and, and put all that also in the show notes. Uh, she's she's been very, very good at, at letting us in on what her training's been like and so on. And, and she's been very, very, you know, she's basically got the social media thing down. So uh, if, if you want to talk to an astronaut while she's in training, go. this is, this is probably your, your best bet, seriously. Uh, she's been really, really accommodating in, in, in that respect. We've had a couple going back and forth ourselves. So, But yeah, if, if you can, go ahead and follow her on, on Twitter. She's been giving some very, very good behind-the-scenes stuff of what's going on over at Star City. So I would really encourage you to do that. We'll put her Twitter ID on up in the show notes. Uh, so... Again, uh, this is the official end for Expedition 41, and Expedition 42 has has started. And as everybody's saying, I hope they all remembered to bring their towels and, and all that. So looking forward to the official start uh, when uh, their Soyuz takes off on uh, Sunday, November 23rd. So I look for that. Moving right along, we were supposed to have the rollout of Exploration flight test number one, or at least the Orion spacecraft, to uh, be mated to its uh, Delta IV heavy booster tonight as we record this. But unfortunately, due to uh, some weather constraints, I believe there was some lightning in the area and so on, they decided to go ahead and curtail that for tomorrow uh, on, uh, on Veterans Day. Uh, this does not repeat, not do anything to the schedule. As far as I know, we are all still set to go for a 4 December uh, launch for Orion. And to stress this, again, they call it Exploration Flight Test 1 for a reason. This is going to be a flight test. Uh, just to see what Orion does, how it works, how it flies. So instead of people be carrying a whole bunch of sensors that will re be reporting back to the ground, making sure that uh, the spacecraft is performing as advertised. But the real test of this, and I'm sure everybody in the audience has already seen this, but we're going to go ahead and include it into the show notes anyway, 
is uh, a video that uh, the uh, Orion office put out basically called Trial by Fire, which basically highlights the reentry phase uh, of Orion. Now, bear in mind again, this is a test flight. This is the first flight for this particular heat shield. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, so if we get the spacecraft back, in my opinion, that's gravy. Uh, even if we don't, even if there's something that goes wrong on this flight, we still learn something. Uh, we had a discussion just before going on air about this, and, and Kat, you had some other observations you wanted to share. Yeah, absolutely, Gene. As we were discussing earlier this week when they did the presser talking about the upcoming Orion flight test, a lot of the conversation started off with this highlighting that this was a flight test. And we need to remember uh, we've just seen, you know, a couple weeks ago what happens, what can happen when spaceflight goes wrong. And one of those was a test. One of them was a scheduled uh, resupply mission. But these things happen. A flight test, we fly them so that we can check out the systems. As you said, Gene, uh, you know, people are flying aboard this. This is an unmanned flight test. It will have lots of sensors. The point of it is to launch it on a large enough vehicle to get Orion out 15 times higher than we've been uh, in the last, since 40 years, since we went to the moon, uh, in order to simulate the re-entry of a deep space mission. So very high velocity re-entry. We need to make sure that the heat shields that we are building now can resist that. So while, of course, we hope that everything goes right on this test, that we get the information we need in order to make sure Orion, the vehicle, is safe for when we have manned flights, for when we have people in that capsule. And as Cassie would agree with me, we always hope that those people are women <laughs> in the capsule, that everything goes right. So just to stress, you know, this is coming up, but the EFT-1 is a test. And if something goes wrong, the best time for something to go wrong is during a test atmosphere. Exactly, Kat. And I just wanted to go ahead and, and really, really stress that, that this is a test vehicle, period. So if we get everything back and it's, it's no worse for wear, that's gravy. And in fact, even, Gene, they already <clears throat> have proposed some changes to the heat shield. Right. So while any information they get from EFT-1 on the performance of Orion's heat shield, they already are looking at improvements even prior to the test. Good point. And uh, thanks for bringing, bringing that up there, Kat. Appreciate it. Just to fill in our audience here a little bit, too, uh, Mark, you and I are going to be taking a little bit of a trip in the not-too-distant future as well. You and me and Sawyer. We'll be over at Kennedy Space Center to uh, go ahead and cover the launch of Exploration Flight Test Number One, and uh, just kind of talk about too its its historic significance. So, Mark, I'm looking forward to again working with the entire crew at, on home base. It'll be interesting for sure. Sawyer and I saw uh, EFT One capsule back when it was just a bare frame that they were starting to uh, you know lay wiring in. It would have been nice if life permitted the luxury of of checking in on on Orion every uh, you know, every few months or several times a year at least. But we didn't manage to pull that off. But there I are actually some... saw Orion uh, last year about this time during Maven's launch. Uh, they were working on Orion in the operations and checkout building. Pretty pretty complete vehicle at that point, and got to have a chance to to get a get a glance at it then. 
Yeah, the facility itself is impressive, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> so we're going to be going ahead, banding together, uh, and uh, bringing you uh, all the highlights from launch day. And I'm looking forward to, again, uh, working with you guys in person. So it's going to be kind of fun. And uh, also, uh, we're going to be uh, delivering, I hope, uh, some really good information post-mission. This is going to be a short flight, about maybe, what, four or five hours. We'll get what we need to get and bring it on home. So I'm looking forward to uh, the opportunity to bring all that, uh, all that information to you, my, to you, you all out there, our, our audience. So I appreciate it. So uh, we're looking forward to, uh, to getting out there. Speaking about getting out there, this took about maybe, what, 10 years, I think, to happen. But I believe on November 12th, just as this is probably hitting the web, this particular program, we are going to be landing on a comet or soft landing on a comet for the very first time. Well, the uh, European Space Agency's Rosetta spacecraft and its uh, Philae lander will be going ahead and, and landing on the surface of a comet, which has never been done before. This is going to talk about things being a little tricky and, and so on. This is going to be really, really hairy. We've never really landed on something this small and this unwieldy before that's that's sort of rotating and doing things. So it's going to be a, a pretty exciting time. Uh, landing is expected at about 10.35 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and a signal confirming uh, landing is expected to be received by ESA at uh, 11.02 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and that again is uh, going to be on November 12th. This is an, an exciting time indeed. I mean, we've crashed into, into a comet before, but we've never soft landed on one. This is really, really uh, some, some heavy duty stuff. And uh, we've got some other goodies to talk about too with reference to uh, Rosetta. So why don't we go ahead and pull that out. First off, the landing site name. It was called just simply Landing Site J before it was selected. Now it has a name, uh, right Cassie? Yes, we have a landing site and a name for it. Now it's, they had about 8,000 people write in names and they said a few hundred wrote in the same name and it seemed really appropriate because the chosen name was, let me know if I'm saying this correctly, Kat, uh, Ajilkia? Yes, Ajilkia. And if, for those who don't know Egyptian history so well, the temple at Philae, which the lander is obviously named after, was moved when they built a dam and they were worried that it was going to get flooded. So the island they moved it to was Ajilkia Island. And so now it's appropriate that Philae the Lander is going to land on an oasis in space, so to speak, called Ajilkia. Yeah, the, uh, this was when they were constructing, I believe, the Aswan Dam back in, uh, I guess somebody's going to have to check me on, on the date there, but it was, it was like maybe the was it the 1960s? I want to say the 1960s. I, I, I could be mistaken, but there was the, the, the Egyptian government was building the Aswan Dam. And as it was, it looked like the island of Philae was right in the middle of things and it was going to get flooded. So they wanted to move all the antiquities off of there. And I believe one of the, the sites was actually the Temple of Isis. 
So they moved it to Ajokia Island. And uh, now what was once on Philae is now on Ajokia. So it, it is kind of an appropriate name. And this was part of a contest, uh, as you pointed out, that uh, was put on by the uh, ISA team. And uh, the gentleman that was selected, again, Kat, what the, the gentleman's name again? Alexander Brust. Yes, thank you. I mean, I'm, I'm so happy I have you two over here because I'm lousy at names. That had won, and I believe his, his reward was to go ahead and come into uh, the ESA facility and basically get uh, the red carpet tour and be on, on site when, when the landing occurs. So that's not a bad honor to have. Cassie, you had some additional information you wanted to share. Well, yes, they're doing a live webcast, and it's going to be a very long one. I noticed it starts at 2 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow. Uh, that's Tuesday the 11th. And the they're going to initially feel like it will leave, Rosetta will be launched at, I believe it's 3 a.m. Eastern time Okay. around there. Uh, so it should be a very long, in-depth webcast. So anytime people have a chance to get in and see some of it, it should be pretty incredible. They're trying to really share this experience on a whole new level for ESA. Is this something that that's an interesting uh, point? Is this something new for them in in that? Because I know NASA has been very, very good at uh, uh, covering things and. ESA has two to some degree as well. I mean, every time they have. I mean, they, they've. I mean, their their launch the launch coverages they have from around space have been just absolutely amazing. So. Yes. No. They they have a lot of online events. I think this just marks a bit more of an expansion. Just as NASA has been consistently, you know, trying something new, seeing if it works. When it works, they keep doing more of it, and then they try something new. And as new technology comes out as well. They keep trying new things and seeing what works, and I think ESA is doing exactly the same thing. That's interesting that they're they're firing off. There's first off, they're starting off incredibly early at two o'clock, and and Philae isn't isn't going to detach from uh, the mothership Rosetta until like three a.m. here local time. Uh, why is that? Do think you think they're just trying to drum up interest in the mission, or trying to pull people in, or or what? Well, to tell you the truth, I didn't see much on the site. I looked at this on their site, and I didn't see much about what they were going to do. But I have noticed a market increase in sharing when it comes to Rosetta. They've had a lot of Google Hangouts on air. They've had a lot of events. Of course, they've treated a lot. I, I think this they've made this a really high-profile mission. And, of course, it's a high-profile mission. They're doing It's a first. And as they say in space coverage, that's the main thing you get coverage for. It's either firsts or disasters. So it being a first, it, it makes it very high profile. And they just seem to keep adding more and more and more to their strategy for outreach at a very quick rate, especially considering how many resources they have to put into it. They've been doing, like I said, the hangouts. They've I'm not, I think they had a Rosetta-related tweet-up already, even. They've just really been doing a great job of drumming up popular support for this mission. Hey, Kat, you were at a event at uh, IAC in Toronto recently, or one of the sessions over there about Rosetta. Is there anything, uh, any other additional insight uh, you can you can share? Yeah, as Cassie was saying, there really is a ramp-up with their presence and 
really wanting to get word about this mission out. So while I was at IAC, I actually had a chance to see Dr. Emily Baldwin at Astro ENZ on Twitter give a presentation on behalf of EJR Quartz, which is an agency that runs ESA's website and a lot of their outreach and social media, talking about some of the things that they have done in order to promote this mission. One of those things that we might be familiar with was the wake up Rosetta hashtag, you know, on social media, asking people what their wake up routines were, uh, getting them to submit YouTube videos saying, how do you wake up? Let's get together and wake up Rosetta. And then along with Rosetta's infamous hello world tweet that then they tweeted again in many other languages once they established contact with Rosetta again. So we're seeing this ramp up of coverage for Rosetta again as we're getting very closely to the landing because as we know the way missions like this get high profiles and get noticed is if they do well on social media because we've discussed this before even many major news outlets now get their breaking news from places like Twitter so if they're providing great public access to be able to follow along online with this with this mission, then they're going to get great coverage by media because it will be trending and it will be popular. And let's face it, Gene, this is exciting. We're landing on a comet. I mean, that's amazing that ESA is accomplishing something that's the first thing to ever be done. So it is something to get excited about. Yeah, when you think about it, and this is probably one of the more difficult things to do to go ahead and, and soft land on a comet. We've we've impacted a cometary uh, nucleus before. Uh, I believe that was the NASA mission, Deep Impact, aptly named after the film. But we've never gone ahead and landed or soft landed on something that's you know turning and pitching and so on. So it, it's it's really kind of difficult to try to imagine you know, a, a spacecraft landing on this thing and landing right where you want it when you've got it in motion. Now, I'll grant you everything's in motion, but this thing is actually turning and, and doing all kinds of things. Hey, Cassie, there, there's some really interesting science going on on board Philae and uh, also with Rosetta. Is there any additional insight you could provide to go ahead and, and talk a little bit about that? Basically... Like with any space mission, there's a lot of acronyms involved. (laughs) But basically, they're going to be, they're testing the magnetism, the gases. They have what's called Ptolemy, which is the evolved gas analyzer. They have imaging systems, uh, panoramic, microwave, an alpha proton x-ray spectrometer called APXS. It's basically, they're going to be just checking out as many things as they possibly can from one spot. And, you know, finding that spot was really, really difficult because this thing is covered in boulders. And what's really important is they didn't want to land on something that landed on the surface. They wanted to land somewhere where they can actually put these to use and test the comet itself, not the things that bombard it. One of the fascinating things, just this is just a personal observation, one of the fascinating things from my standpoint is the photography that's coming back. Some of the photographs, or most of the photographs, are in color. But if you look at them, they're all just 
different shades of gray. And that, to me, says something. This is a color you know, photograph, boys there, and girls. There's, there's an old saying in photography, and this applied more back in the days of film because, of course, now everything's different. But actually, it's kind of still true. And the joke is, how do you take a black and white photograph? <laughs> the answer, you take a color photograph of a black and white subject. There are no blacks nor whites in black and white photography. It's all shades of gray. So actually to get some of these incredible grays and blacks and rich colors that we're getting, you actually have to do color photography <laughs> in order to get those colors. But it, it to me, it says a lot about the environment that it does. Rosetta's in and, and, and the realm that we're in. We're in a very alien place. We're not in a place that we've ever really, really encountered before. And I'm talking about everywhere that we've, that, that this generation has seen. And I'm talking from, you know, the moon on through Neptune. This is a really, really wild place that we're, we're going to be at. So I believe if I recall, because I did see sort of the tail end of the uh, Google Hangout that Issa presented. And again, this time is in, um, in CET, because that was the time frame that they're talking, they were talking because about. Because that's that's ESA's right. That's ESA's time zone. That's right. their official time zone. Right. So, but on November thirteenth, at uh, fourteen hundred between fourteen hundred and fifteen hundred uh, CET, there's going to be a media briefing to talk about w how things went and what surprises there will be. So we're going to be watching that very very closely. It's going to be a pretty exciting nail nail biting kind of time here. For uh, for for the entire world, I think watching this on November twelfth. Any any final comments before we uh, we go away from Rosetta? Well, I would like to mention we were talking about the science, and anybody who's listening to this who knows me knows I'm a musician and might know that I trained as an audio engineer and spent years audio engineering, and so I'm really excited about Sesame which is the Surface Electric Sounding and Acoustic Monitoring Experiment. I'm always fascinated by sounds from space, and I don't know how much sharing they're going to do publicly of what they get from that, but I cannot wait to see the data that comes back from that. So that's just a personal note. Also, Haley's comment was what clinched my interest in space. So learning this much about comets, if you told me when I was 10 years old and watching Haley's Comet that we were going to be doing this when I was 38, I would have been absolutely beyond blown away. So good job, Issa. And JPL, I should also <laughs> say. <laughs> Very true. Yeah, J I would. Go ahead, go ahead, Cap. Oh, no, I was going to say one thing that I would just like to echo about being excited is once again, this is just an example of how truly international these missions are. You know, it's an ESA-led mission, but there are people contributing to this from all over the world. And space is just a great example of how international cooperation can work and work well. And, you know, we should also say, because we were talking about EFT-1, and, you know, a lot of people aren't quite so aware how much ESA is involved in the Orion program. And so we don't, <laughs> we don't go to a vacuum in a vacuum anymore. And I think that's a good thing. That's kind of true. And, and to enlighten some folks that don't know, Orion's service module will be based on the uh, automated transfer vehicle, or ATV, which was a cargo vehicle that ESA had built for the International Space Station, but it gets a second life now as the service module for the Orion. And just as an aside, there is a little updated paper model of Orion out there. 
uh, and we will go ahead and put that into the show notes as well uh, when we're talking EFT1. So any other comments before we uh, we leave our comment for a little while? Because we're going to be coming back to it most likely next week. Then we'll move back here to Earth and back to Dulles, Virginia, and uh, Orbital Sciences. They had a very interesting press conference back on November 5th. To me, it was an eye-opener a little bit that here we were about six days out from a, just what looked like an absolute showstopper of an event, which was the destruction of the Antares vehicle some 15 to 20 seconds into the Orb 3 mission, the mission that was going to carry uh, logistics supplies to the International Space Station, taking the good ship Donald K. Slayton up to the ISS. The uh, CEO of Orbital Sciences, David Thompson, outlined in a investor meeting or an investor uh, telecon uh, what he was going to do and what the game plan was going forward. So uh, why don't we go ahead. It's a, it's a three-minute clip. It's well worth listening to because it was very, very succinct in what the game plan was going forward. They did have some ruminations a little bit about what the preliminary findings were from the investigation. And again, to, to revisit that, the thought was beforehand that they would probably have an inkling within about maybe six days or at least a, a list of what they thought might have went wrong with the vehicle within about maybe six days or so. And then this way they could go ahead and isolate that. The preliminary, well, why don't we just go ahead and let David Thompson speak for himself? Well, still preliminary and subject to change, current evidence strongly suggests that one of the two AJ-26 main engines that powered Antares' first stage failed about 15 seconds after ignition. At this time, we believe the failure likely originated in or directly affected the turbopump machinery of this engine, but I want to stress that more analysis will be required to confirm that this finding is correct. Over the past week, Orbital has updated and expanded previously developed contingency plans and product improvement roadmaps to create a comprehensive go-forward approach. This go-forward plan will enable the company to fulfill our commitments to NASA under the current CRS Space Station Cargo Program and also to return Antares to flight status as soon as possible. I want to caution that at present these plans are still under review and as a result uh, could be subject to future revision. And while we have discussed these plans with NASA and other relevant parties at a conceptual level, many details still need to be worked out before the plans can be finalized. With those qualifications in mind, uh, here is what we intend to do. First. Orbital will employ the inherent flexibility of our Cygnus cargo spacecraft that permits it to be launched on third-party launch vehicles and to accommodate heavier cargo loads as allowed by more capable launchers. This option had already been contemplated in previous contingency plans and product improvement up, uh, uh, roadmaps, uh, and its implementation should be relatively straightforward. Second, taking advantage of the spacecraft's flexibility, 
we will purchase one or two non-Antares launch vehicles for Cygnus flights in 2015 and possibly in early 2016 and combine them with several upgraded Antares rocket launches of additional Cygnus spacecraft in 2016 to deliver all remaining CRS cargo. That is, by consolidating the cargo of five previously planned CRS missions into four more capable ones, we believe we can maintain a similar or perhaps even a somewhat better delivery schedule than we were on before last week's launch failure, uh, completing all current CRS program cargo deliveries by the end of 2016. Third, we will accelerate the introduction of Antares upgraded propulsion system, advancing its initial launch date from the previously planned 2017 into 2016. Consequently, we will likely discontinue the use of the AJ-26 rocket engines that have been used on the first five Antares vehicles unless and until those engines can be conclusively shown to be flight-worthy. Finally, we will support the work of Mars and NASA to quickly repair the, the facility damage at Wallops Island so as to allow Antares launch operations to resume there in early to mid-2016 and to continue for the long term. David Thompson, and again, this was within about six days of the accident, laid it out on the line, said exactly what the, the game plan was going forward, he also indicated that indeed it, it looked like the smoking gun may have been a turbo pump issue in one of the AJ-26 engines. Now we knew the uh, AJ-26 engines for Antares was, was not long for this world anyway because of the supply issues they were going to have. There were only about maybe 38 of them really, really still in existence. And one of the things, again, I'm going to stress, because I saw this way too many times out there on the Internet, and I still continue to see it, is that no uh, orbital scientist, and this does not just stick a vintage 1960s engine into this thing and goes to fly. This engine's completely refurbished when it goes into a, uh, a plant operated by Aerojet, and it is completely refitted and transformed into the AJ-26. It's sort of, again, I'll take the same analogy I used in the first show after, you know, after the, uh, the accident. It's sort of like taking the, the engine out of your you know, 1970 Dodge Charger, say, taking it out, ripping it apart, putting 21st century components back into the engine, and reinstalling it. So you're not really getting a 1960s vintage engine anymore. You actually have, a, have an engine block that may be 1960s vintage, but you've got basically 21st century technology all around it. So that's essentially what the Aerojet does. It goes in as this NK-33 and it comes out as the AJ-26. And they've basically taught that old dog to do new tricks, but it uh, uh, wasn't smart enough back on the uh, on the 28th of uh, October. Any comments about the, uh, the game plan that uh, uh, David Thompson uh, laid out? Like I said, and have said in our conversations about this, that I've been incredibly impressed with their response to the Antares incident. 
But in regards to the engine, it's very obvious that they had plans in place in case of any sort of failure. Not saying that they were anticipating a failure of an engine or a failure in any stage of the mission, but it's very obvious that this was a contingency that they had planned for. And as we all know, they had already been planning on using a different engine. Uh, this wasn't something that is happening because of the incident. It was something that was already in the works. And just, again, the way that they've handled this, their response, their transparency, their decisiveness in their plans, you know, their go-forward plan, has been remarkable when you look at how companies can handle disasters to, in juxtaposition as how many do handle these types of incidents. And it's really impressive that, you know, going on just not... It's really impressive that not only do they have a plan in place already for finding a new engine for their Antares rocket, but they also have a plan in place to continue to fulfill their commitment to the commercial resupply program with NASA by looking for a different launch vehicle because of the flexibility of the Cygnus spacecraft and that they will be able to complete their contract in less missions than they were originally scheduled to because of the loss of the Orb 3. Well, yeah, I mean, the, in fact, this month, they were going to go ahead and announce a new engine for Antares going forward for the 2017 time frame and for the, uh, the commercial resupply contract number two that will be up for grabs in 2016. So th that wasn't any new piece of, some, of, of information. Uh, they are keeping the. They have selected the new engine. They are keeping it under wraps because uh, because of the, uh, uh, the the upcoming contract. They don't want to apparently show all their cards just yet. But uh, uh, there there are rumors flying around on what it is, and we're not going to go down that path here. We'll wait for the uh, we'll wait for the announcement. Uh, again, to to fill in, Cygnus is going to fly two missions next year on a competitor's booster, mind you. Uh, they are talking to two U.S. providers for the booster, and they are talking to a European provider. That's obviously Ariane Space, but you know which which booster they're going to going to use is anybody's guess. I will say for a fact, though, because this did come up in the press conference, or should I say the investor conference? I'm sorry, uh, that it will not be Ariane Five because Ariane Five just doesn't fly in the inclination that the International Space Station is in or its cargo doesn't fly in that direction so they're not going to be piggybacking on on anybody uh going there because they just can't simply get to the iss so there are rumors of as far as which booster they're going to going to select i'm not going to go down there i'm sure there's going to be an announcement forthwith as soon as they go ahead and buy these things but it seems to me cat again to talk a little bit, a bit about what you were saying uh, they had this contingency plan in place in the event the, the inevitable does happen, and it does happen with these things, uh, that somehow or other things go wrong, And but they did have a plan. And how agile they've been has just been nothing more than amazing. I think the walk away I had, at least from from sitting in on the investors' conference, was that the investors seemed to be kind of pleased 
with what uh, Orbital Sciences w was doing to you know, mitigate things. And if the investors are pleased, I'll bet you NASA is looking at this going, hey, this is pretty darn good, too, because, number one, they, they did stress during the investor conference that they are not passing along the cost of all of this to uh, the customer, meaning the U.S. taxpayer, us. So they are going to be able to go ahead and deliver their cargo pretty much on time in four missions rather than the scheduled five. And uh, that, to me... It shows commitment. They're trying to go ahead and satisfy their customer. They're willing to go ahead and, and fly this thing on a competitor's booster. In fact, Cygnus was actually designed uh, to fly on a competitor's booster if and when, you know, if Antares decided that it was, it, it was unflyable. So they did plan for that, and that, that shows a lot of foresight and so on. So it will be really, really interesting to see how this next year comes about in 2015, where they're going to be launching from, either Koru or the Kennedy Space Center, and who they're going to be launching with as far as the boosters are concerned. They did say they are going to buy two core boosters for 2015. They are going to launch twice to the International Space Station and will launch another two times out of Wallops Island, they hope, in 2016. So this is this is going to be a, an ongoing story. It'll be an intriguing story of recovery for, over at Orbital, but it's, I think it's also, too, uh, kind of exciting to see how they're responding and how agile they have been in the face of all of this. And, Kat, we talked about this earlier as well, how open they have been with all of this. They have not tried to go ahead and shutter things out. They are still placing updates, I believe, on the website. There hasn't been one for a while because they're, they're still probably in a, in a position of, of gathering data and so on. And they've got some pretty impressive names in the investigation. I mean, Wayne Hale is on board with that as a member of the board that is, that's conducting the investigation. So it, they're taking this seriously. They want to get Antares flying again. They want to start launching again from the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport but they want to do it in a smart way. Um, that's really, really the, the, the big takeaway from all of this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was incredibly smart of them to address the financial concern up front, uh, not just with the investors, but later in a press release, they address the financial impact, which is important because with these two accidents happening within private space, a lot of the buzz has come from the business publications. So it's very important that they recognize the type of atmosphere they were speaking into and were able to address that prescient concern because when it comes down to it, money matters because their funding is coming from the taxpayer. And right now we're going into a Congress that is controlled by people who tend to have a very strict fiscal leash. So mm -hmm. it was incredibly smart of them to address it in that way. Yeah, if, if you take a look, look at uh, Bloomberg and, uh, and the Wall Street Journal, they've been kind of reporting the story in the same manner. So, uh, again, uh, very astute observation. Before we, we leave the topic, uh, for now anyway, this is something we're going to continue to watch here on Talking Space, and we'll deliver any new news that we have uh, in this. But in some odd way, 
picking up Humpty Dumpty and putting this whole thing back together again has been an intriguing thing to watch from the sidelines. And to me, it looks like you know, somebody's really got their head screwed on tight in their approach to dealing with this and realizes that uh, there's a lot at stake here, but they are doing it and they're, they're, they're trying to make some very interesting lemonade out of, out of the lemons they've been handed. So uh, hats off to Orbital Sciences on this. And, and it seems to me they're gonna, get, they're gonna get their act together and recover quite nicely from this. Speaking of the Wall Street Journal, um, there was an interesting article uh, about uh, the other unfortunate incident that occurred on uh, 31 October with uh, uh, Virgin Galactic and the, the loss of the, uh, uh, the VSS Enterprise killing the, uh, the co-pilot, Michael Alsbury, and uh, we had one survivor, uh, Peter Siebold, who was the, uh, the pilot on the, on the vehicle. There was a very interesting report out of uh, the UK Mail, and I uh, believe it was uh, Universe Today that sort of re-reported -re that, that whole story. We're going to go ahead and post the uh, uh, Universe Today article in our, in our show notes, but it described Peter Siebold and what he actually went through after the explosion. And it was a, an interesting story of survival. It was told basically through his dad. And he confessed that his son told him that he has no idea what happened prior to uh, what, what the, the initial cause of the explosion was. He doesn't actually even remember it. It was just that one second he recalls he came to and uh, he was actually free falling. And uh, the, uh, I believe the chute system is programmed to unfurl at uh, 20,000 feet, whether you like it or not. And uh, that chute system basically deployed, and uh, he was okay after that. In fact, I believe one of the chase planes flew by, and he was still at enough strength to give them the thumbs up, meaning he was okay. So he still doesn't even know, by the grace of God, how he got out of that that. Uh, uh, that uh, disintegrating uh, aircraft, but uh, uh, it was quite a quite a story indeed of, uh, of survival. And um, there was also a, a story out of the Wall Street Journal that took what we reported here last week from the NTSB. And keep in mind, we went ahead and we stressed the fact that what was being reported by Christopher Hart was not a statement of cause. It was a statement of fact that they observed through the audio visual cameras on board the uh, spacecraft and uh, what was going on inside the cockpit. Mr. Hart did say, who's I believe the acting administrator of the NTSB, did say that this was not a statement of cause. He cautioned everybody in the press saying, this is not what we think caused the accident. We're just reporting what we observed through the cameras. And uh, it was the infamous uh, lock-unlock that they saw the co-pilot do. But again, there was no, we don't know what Michael Allsbury was looking at and responding to. His instruments could have been lying to him. There could have been a whole plethora of things. But uh, the article written in the Wall Street Journal uh, sort of was trying to shine the ugly light on the co-pilot which I thought was, A, a little bit premature in, in this whole thing. What the uh, NTSB reported was just one small little data point 
that they are looking at and trying to put this huge puzzle together. And Mark, you you had a rather cogent, and I, I, I stressed this to everybody that was potentially going to download last week's episode, you had a rather cogent and a rather intelligent way of, of taking all of us by the hand and telling us exactly what the NTSB does in the event of an accident like this. And uh, we stressed again, this was just one single data point, correct? Right, and, and consider this. I, I have a different uh, way of, of giving a sort of a picture of how complex this is. Think of this as one of those puzzles that's, a th I mean, a, a literal puzzle that you set on a table and you put the pieces together. And let's say it's a thousand-piece puzzle, and the majority of the pattern is virtually the same, like a field of wildflowers or something. And the complexity of sorting all this out, because they've got all of the sensors that we talked about, all of the data that's going to come in, they need to be able to put it in a time sequence to determine exactly what happened in what order, because you can take something out of context and, and come up with, with some reason or some cause. But when you put it in, in the context of the time frame of the actual uh, time hack of, of what happened when, it could build a very different picture. And I think it's interesting as I looked into it some more that, you know, they're going into the operation side of spaceship uh, of scaled composites. And they're, they're going into so many different aspects that go beyond the crew and beyond the aircraft that... Uh, this is a big, big puzzle, and it's going to take a little bit of time, and we all hope that there will be a, a, a good few tips that will come along pretty quickly, but uh, who knows? Yeah, uh, Kat, you had some additional insight into this whole thing, so we were talking uh, again as we were preparing for tonight, so if you want to go ahead and share that as well. This is a classic example of media sensationalizing stories. As both you and Mark said, the co-pilot, Osbury, responding by moving that lever, we don't know that that's the proximate cause. We don't even know that that has anything to do with the breakup. At this point, it's just a statement of fact, not a statement of cause. What we also need to remember is that this feathering system is a two-part system. The lever that the video showed Osbury moving should not have allowed the feathering system to deploy without the additional moving of another lever. It's a two-part system. It's supposed to have a safety uh, protocol that prevents these types of unintentional deploying. And again, as we've stressed when this happened and we've stressed on this show, we don't know what caused this. And it is incredibly premature and irresponsible reporting to place blame on someone who can't speak for himself because he lost his life in this incident, we really need to give time for the NTSB investigation to be able to speak for him about what happened. And like I said, this is just a symptom of the sensationalizing media that we saw happen right after the Antares uh, incident. There were a lot of sensational stories about NASA rockets blowing up. We saw it again with Spaceship Two. And it's really important that we all take a step back and we look at the facts. 
And of course, facts don't sell papers, facts don't get viewers. Uh, so we're going to hear these sensational stories. And because of that, it's going to allow rumors to promulgate across the internet. And so just, you know, our listeners, we ask that if you hear this, you know, take a step and say, hey, we don't really know what happened yet. This is a this is an investigation that's going to take, you know, probably a year. And we need to know what happened, but we certainly don't need to assign blame prematurely. And that's the thing is facts take time. It's really easy to jump on a single data point or to jump on very early things said that are these one tiny piece to a, you know, 13,000 piece puzzle. So, of course, media, they can't wait for facts in this 24-7 news world. That's what it feels like. Yeah, one of the things that I've I've said we're not going to do here is we're not going to go down, venture down the, the, the speculation road and and really come up with, you know, Colonel Mustard did it in the conservatory with a revolver type stuff. We're going to try to see, we're going to stick to the data and we're going to see where it leads us, just like the NTSB will be monitoring what the NTSB puts out. So far, they've, uh, the last uh, uh, report that they had was back, uh, the one that we had enlightened everybody back on, on November 3rd, that seemed to be the last one. But uh, we are going to go ahead and, and, and wait for the NTSB to go ahead and, and give us the data, give us what they've discovered thus far tie it up in a bow and and let us kind of absorb it a little bit. But it, wild speculation isn't going to get us anywhere. Even the weekend after the accident, we had people speculating the fuel was the cause because they were using a different kind of fuel, uh, that the engine was, was the problem. People were writing to Virgin Galactic, excuse me, Virgin Galactic about the engine all the time. We had a whole bunch of other stuff that people said it was. And by the way, we still don't have a probable root cause. And as as everybody here on this panel has pointed out, we probably won't for at least a year. I mean, Mark, you said last week, the NTSB does a painstaking investigation and they look at everything they don't just look at the accident they look at the underpinnings of it was it a training issue was it was it instrumentation was it this was it that what all things played a role in in the disintegration of this vehicle over the mojave desert uh, on on 31 october they will go through all of that and that's what virgin galactic really needs to go forward with any any plan that they have Grant you all of that's on hold right now. Grant you uh, this is something else we'll get into on, a, on perhaps next week, but the uh, future looks kind of bleak over at Spaceport America. That's a whole different ball of wax, and we'll revisit that possibly next week. But uh, these are things that uh, that we need to look at. We need, we need to examine in order for Virgin Galactic to go forward and clean up their act and make sure that they get it right and... Uh, make sure that the new vehicle they're building is uh, is ship shape because they do have a new vehicle under construction right now. And, you know, Gene, when it comes down to it, the salient point that we need to keep in mind is that we will learn how to do space better because of these accidents. That's, again, that uh, exactly right, Kat. And that, that's what uh, essentially, I believe, the, the folks over at Orbital Sciences did, did stress, too. And I think NASA's uh, Bill Gerstenmaier said the same thing during the press conference post Antares. And again, the, the folks over at NASA know this, that this is this stuff is really, really 
it's called rocket science for a reason, guys. And I'd like uh, to say, in a, whenever I'm in uh, the Kennedy Space Center space shop, <laughs> I always like to say they really should stop selling those failure isn't an option shirts because the reality is with space, avoiding failure entirely is not an option. It, it really isn't. And, you know, that was a great catch line from a movie. But the truth is, when you're doing something this difficult, failure it's inevitable it's how you learn it's if you look back at the earliest days of space flight look at how much we learned from some pretty awful disasters it's we can't stress this enough which is why we keep harping on it yeah and and to close out our our comments on this tonight i'm going to just simply say that say this i was I was looking through my notes prior to coming on board, and there was one, Cassie, just you you mentioning this, uh, you know, a great catch line from a movie. Just it it just reminded me of a, oddly enough, and I keep on coming back to this, another uh, Star Trek episode, and there was a quote from one of the uh, the characters from the Next Generation, Picard's main nemesis, Q. It was the end of a, a particular episode, and um, Picard was complaining to Q that, you know, we could have learned the lesson that you were trying to tell us, but we could have learned it without the without the damage you inflicted. And uh, the character turns around and says this, and I'm going to say this just as a as a learning experience for everybody going forward, and thinking about spaceflight in general. He said this. If you can't take a little bloody nose, why don't you crawl under your bed? It's not safe out here. It's wondrous. It's filled with treasures to satiate desires, both subtle and gross. But it's not for the timid. And with that, we will end this uh, Talking Space episode for tonight. Kat, thanks a lot for being with us tonight. I know you had some family commitments while, you, while we were doing the show, but I do appreciate your patience. Thanks a whole bunch. Oh, no, my, my pleasure. Thank you. And Cassie, again, thanks so much for, for uh, being with us tonight. I appreciate it. Oh, of course. And Mark, uh, always a joy, and I'm looking forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. So uh, thanks a lot for being here tonight. Life is always surprising, and hopefully Talking Space will be for our listeners, too. Fingers crossed in that department. And I want to thank you all for, uh, for downloading and uh, considering this, uh, this, uh, this program part of your day. So... Good night, good luck, and uh, we'll see you next week.